The following podcast is taken from a live broadcast on Inspire FM. Assalamu alaikum everyone. Welcome to Sister Speak. You're here with me, Mariam. Also joined in the studio is... Assalamu alaikum everyone. It's me, Fadeen. And we also have a guest with us today, Arafa Farouk from Muslimic Makers. Salams to you. Alaikum assalam. Lovely to have you here. So today's topic, we'll be talking about Muslimic Makers and how it was established. And we'll be talking about how Muslims are influencing change in the tech space. But before I do that, I'd like to introduce Arfa. So Arfa is a uh, Arfa Farouk is a community manager for VCs which are interested in in impact and investing. She's also the co-founder of Muslimic Makers, which is an organization that seeks to upskill, mentor and create networking opportunities for Muslims in the tech space. So for those who don't know, Muslimic Makers was established in 2016 and has had over 4,200 attendees, 45 events and recently had its first ever tech fest in the Royal Institution, which I was a beneficiary of. And I'm looking forward to talk about that later on on the show. Arfa has also been featured as the top 30 London Tech Week changemakers and has been featured on the BBC's Forbes and various major platforms. So a huge, huge honour for us to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for joining us. We're looking forward to delve into the topic. So before we do delve into our show, Farine, what is our show about? So Sister Speak is a platform for Muslim girls to voice their own opinions on current events and issues and form discussions on general topics such as religion, culture, politics, identity and social media. Please note all opinions and views are our own and we respect all other and opposing similar views and opinions. Thank you for that. So just to reiterate, all opinions and views are our own and we uh, we respect all other opposing views. If you want to join in the discussion, Farine, how can they contact us? So you can call us on 015824818822 or you can WhatsApp us on 0779481822. We are also live on Facebook at InspireFM Luton. And if after the live you have any thoughts or you want to share I don't know, your thought of the week, you can DM us on Instagram at SisterSpeak. Amazing. And we look forward to hear your thoughts. So I'm going to start off the show with our first segment, which is called Thought of the Week. So the Thought of the Week is a segment where we share something insightful, something that we've been thinking about, perhaps a reflection or even a personal anecdote. And I'll start off with Farine. Yep. So I've been listening to a lot of Islamic lectures these past couple of weeks. And there's this one lecture that I was listening to. And there's two weeks I was waiting to come on radio to say it as my Thought of the Week. And... He said that every single thing that it's wajib for us to do, like praying, uh, fasting, taking the shahada, it's it's obligatory. But for us, it's a necessity to get through what we want in our purpose in life. And I thought that was so beautiful because it's so true. Because when you pray, you fast, you do all the things that you know a Muslim is supposed to do to get to what you want at the end, your purpose in life. So the whole lecture was on the purpose of life, what you want to do. And if that you start th- uh, looking at the things, praying and all of that as not a chore, but something that it's going to heal you, like your soul, and it's going to heal sp- your spiritually, then you're not going to see it as a chore. And it's going to be something that's going to be so in your life. It's just going to be so peaceful. So that was my thought of the week. That's incredible. And I, I've been actually quite, you know, ironically, I've been looking at, um, I've been studying uh, Aqidah and uh, Islamic philosophy and we we're talking about the tenets of faith and actually you're right in terms of intentionality when you think about the tenets of faith and how that informs our decision that really can transform your life and it really does implicitly inform how you view things and it frames your mi- uh, mindset. So thank you for that thought of the week. I'm going to move to Arfa which I'm very excited to hear her thought of the week. Um, Arfa, can you share us your thoughts? Yeah, mine is... Um Probably not as deep as yours, but um, it's kind of just about consistency, actually. Um, you know, like when you try something new and say you're not getting like the right feedback or it's not taking off, it's very easy to kind of just like give up. Um, and I guess this thought simply comes from like, I'm, God, it's going to sound a bit kind of, <laughs> I'm like trying to grow like my TikTok account, for example, right? It's like very, like very simple. And it's it's really interesting because it's like, you know, I've filmed lots of tons of content and, and stuff like that. But then if I only get 300 views, I'm just not feeling really motivated to like push, push out more or put out more. And it's just the fact of like nothing comes easy. Right. And it's only through kind of consistency um, 
and I know that and when we get into Mazamit Makers we can totally like talk about that consistent effort is kind of what led to where it was today but I think in the very early days when you're trying something new it's very easy to just give up and not carry on Oh, that's a very um, good insight because for a lot of people, that's where the first struggle is to just start something new and to, to be able to kind of pursue it and just be disciplined enough. I think a lot of the times your motivation might not be as sustainable as discipline. Um, but in, on the note of social media, Farine, do you have any thoughts on that? Because she's someone that's very interested in social media. And how do you navigate th- those kind of elements when you are making, for example, for Sister Speak um, social media? It's hard. It's hard. I'm a really I'm always involved in a lot of social media and I do like to make TikToks and everything for Sister Speak. So obviously you don't get the views that you want. You get a bit disheartened that oh this is not interesting to other people. But the thing for me is in those three hundred views there's someone that's interested by it and that's just enough for me. It doesn't matter if it's one or two people, at least we're doing something. People are looking at what we're doing. And I think it's so important with this three hundred views, it doesn't matter if it's like a minority, at least you're giving a message, sending a message to those persons instead of doing it to like a thousand people and just getting nothing across. Well, it's really- I think just a- Go ahead. I'm sorry. sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I think just to reflect on that, I think that's so, so true. Um, you forget, right, 300 people is still 300 people. It's like a wedding hall, right? Probably on the lowest, lower, lowest <laughs> scale. That's like still 300 people. And you're right, from that 300 people, there might be one person that goes away and takes away something. There might be that one person that gets inspires, inspired, right? And I, I used to always have this saying I used to say where I used to say, I might not change the world, but someone I might inspire might go on to. And actually like that, that's a good reminder for me. So thanks for sharing that because actually, yeah, like you're right. It, you forget that it, all it takes is that one person. That's incredible because I feel like as a beneficiary of Muslimic Makers, you definitely have inspired me and the space that Muslimic Makers has had, the impact of it has really transformed me in terms of how I associate with people. And then um, I'm more in the civic space, so being in the tech space has been really different and I will be sharing my reflections on that later on. So I definitely think you emulate that, embody that anyways. Um, And I'm really looking forward for our viewers to be able to hear about your story uh, in the later part of the show. Uh, in terms of my thought of the week, I think my thought of the week is about introspection. It's something that I'm very keen on talking about. Um, just because in the last few weeks I've had some turbulence in my life and I, I really did look into myself and look inwards in terms of reflecting how how have I responded to these uh, turbulences and how can I improve myself. Um, and I think one of the biggest things is when you think about self-awareness, you often do take that time to isolate and screen yourself. However, I think equally it's important to get objective feedback. And I know, Arthur, you just mentioned the idea of feedback. And I think it's really important to talk to people that you trust and people of knowledge to be able to kind of help you overcome certain challenges but also to be able to objectively give you that feedback constructive feedback for you to improve and to grow um but i also think another element of it is to uh, to change your associates and what i mean is that if you are if you're immune to one certain group of people who have the same perspectives it might not be as conducive to your self-development and growth as it would be if you pivot and you change kind of areas and so for me I was quite big in the advocacy space and now I'm sort of pivoting to the tech space and the people I'm meeting and the kind of conversations I'm having really are revealing a lot of things about myself but also it's been an opportunity for me to learn so many new things so I think kind of rounding it off I think it's really important to be able to exercise introspection and to be able to screen yourself but also to be able to take objective feedback and to be able to uh, be open to different perspectives from that you're not usually inclined to. Yeah, yeah definitely, yeah, I agree. Does anyone have any thoughts? No, I think yeah. I think I do agree with you, Mariam. I think it's so important to be open-minded. And I was just uh, reading uh, Twitter, which you got me addicted to, <laughs> and <Same>. um, <laughs> and oh, there was saying. Oh, it's X now, apparently. Oh, it's X now, yeah. Sorry. She got, sounds a bit weird. I'm just going to say Twitter so everyone understands. Um, and they were saying if, um, what other areas have you done, um, like have you worked in that they don't relate it to your degree? And I was like, you can do so many things, even though if, if I have, a, for example, a degree in law, it doesn't mean that I only have to stick to that one thing. I can do so many other things. And I think it's really important to be open to doing anything that you are interested in. Absolutely. Afa, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I think it's just um, you you shapeshift. And I think like 
I mean, we can go into a completely different discussion about like degrees versus apprenticeships and all that stuff. But I think ultimately it's like the world is changing so fast. So the jobs of tomorrow don't exist today. And ultimately you have to keep changing things around. So I think, you know, what, what you might study today might not, you know, there might not be jobs of that in the future, right? It could be taken away by AI and robots and all sorts of stuff. And ultimately, I think it's more about developing that resilience and developing kind of skills in terms of being able to pick up things and learn quickly that will take. Absolutely. I think that's something that uh, we've discussed before and I show as well to be quite agile when it comes to um, getting new opportunities and trying to make yourself resilient to the job market, especially because as you mentioned, it, it, the job market itself shapeshifts. So I think one of the things that people tend to misconstrue is that you have to be, you have to do the uh, career trajectory that you studied in, um, and that's definitely not true. Especially if we talk about my career trajectory, I studied sciences and then I studied English literature and then I work in finance. So it's a, it's a bit of a change, but I think um, one of the things that one of my kind of reflections is that it's really about what you put your what you put yourself into. So if you put yourself into opportunities where you're learning different skills it kind of brings that balance up of your ability to be adaptable in different scenarios and it makes you actually stand out because you're able to kind of pivot from different areas and I think the education system doesn't really give you that scope or space to be able to think more broadly um, but that's a whole kind of discussion in and of itself um, and that's why I feel like tech space is really interesting because whilst I might not have the experience specifically in terms of coding or specific tech kind of uh, skills which you probably can discuss later on I do know that I have project management skills which is something that's really important and that could be transferred to product product management um, so I think it's about just really thinking about how you can assert yourself in different spaces and using transferable skills to be able to apply them in those spaces um, but I'm sure we'll be going to delve into that a little bit deeper but now I'm going to move on to a segment where we tend to, we tend to do these would you rather questions with our guests just to kind of warm things up a little bit um, and get our thinking hats on so Afram, I'm going to start with you um, the first question is would you rather live in a world where everyone can read minds or a world where everyone can see the future oh that's a hard one I think see the future I think reading minds could get a bit toxic. <laughs> yeah. Um, mm, I think read, see the future. Yeah, I mean, I've, I prefer reading minds, to be honest. I think I'm so nosy. I just want to know what everyone's thinking about me all the time. <laughs> That's really interesting. I want you guys to elaborate on your answers. Did it start with you, um, Yeah, so I think... Um, I mean, yeah, I'm totally nosy too, but I just think, like, reading minds isn't going to benefit me. Um, whereas I feel like seeing my future would. So if I see that, I don't know, I have a very unhealthy lifestyle or something in the future, it might force me to implement me to like actually like make changes so that I can change the future. That's interesting. Do you feel though that if you keep thinking about the future, you're going to be living in the future and won't be conscious of the present? Do you think that problem would occur? But I think... you'd be able to make changes to implement in your present than to impact the future. That makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. You have to be resilient. I think a lot of times people tend to live in the future anyways. It's always about what if. Um, So being present and conscious is something that, it's a a quality that you have to kind of establish. And I think as you mature and grow, for me, um, definitely, it's allowing myself to just to be intentional. Um, For me, definitely, I would agree. I would not want to read minds. I think I barely can cope with my own mind, let alone thinking about what other people are thinking. Um, Seeing the future would be just a bit more conducive in terms of allowing me to think, okay, this is what's going to happen to me and I can um, affect change in my life in the present. I got peer pressure now. I'm going to change my answer. I want to see the future as well. (laughs) (laughs) It helped you in in different ways. Yeah, it helped me develop personally. You guys' answers make more sense than mine. No, there's no right and wrong in these questions. It's just a personal perspective. And it's also the position you are in your life. I definitely think that as well. Um, just for context, Arfa, Farin is actually in sixth form. She's a sixth form student who is who actually came from Spain. So English is like her fourth language. Um, so wow. just kudos to her. And I, I always appreciate her in all the shows because I think it's incredible what she's doing. Thank you, Mariam. <laughs> um, just for context. So... The next question um, I have is, would you rather have the power to instantly learn a skill or have unlimited wealth? I'm going to start with you, Arfa. Sorry, unlimited? Wealth, wealth. 
Oh, uh, probably unlimited wealth because you could then pay someone to teach you to learn skills. It might take longer, but you could still get to the same goal. And then with wealth, you can do good with it. That's really interesting. What about yourself, Irene? I agree with Arfa because why would you want to learn a skill fast when you can get money? <laughs> you get unlimited wealth and you can learn a skill. It takes time to learn a skill anyways, so it's not it's not going to be anything different. But unlimited wealth, that's something I can't pass on. That's really interesting because I have the complete different perspective of this. I feel like I would want to have the ability to learn a skill instantly because if I learn how to make money instantly... Sure, it might take a little bit more time, but then I'll be able to diversify that money and I'll be able to compound that money. But also I'll get to learn other skills that might be more interesting to me in terms of learning languages and that will actually increase my capital. So I have a very different perspective, but it's really interesting how you both view it. Um, in terms of the next question, would you rather have the ability to experience the emotion of others or have others experience your emotions without control? And I want you guys to think about this quite carefully because it's quite a loaded question. So if we want to feel other people's emotions or we want other people to feel our emotions. So I'll, I'll repeat the question. Would you rather have the ability to experience the emotions of others or have the others experience your emotions without control? So you're constantly feeling other people's emotions or people are uh, able to experience your emotions, but you won't have any sense of control of that. Um, I think I'll take option B. I don't want to feel other people's emotions. I get so overwhelmed. You have so many emotions mm. of like yourself, when you're angry, you're sad, you're this. You don't want to be extra angry or extra sad. So yeah, definitely I'll let people feel my emotions. Yeah, I, I, agree. I agree with that. I think so as well. I think we all can concede to that fact. Um, okay, the next question is a bit more lighthearted. I've been making you guys think a lot. <laughs> um, would you rather spend a week exploring outer space or a week exploring the deep ocean and give a reason why? you would choose your choice. <laughs> I mean, after the recent um, travesty of the Titanic submarines, uh, I think ocean is probably out of the question for a while. So I'd go for space. <laughs> what do you do, do in space? What do you think? What would you do? I would <sighs> jump around in Mars or something. Yeah. Yeah, I think... Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one, right? Because I feel like there's so much... Like, the sea is more vast and mysterious than space. Mm -hmm. So actually there is more to experience in the sea, but I think there's also, it just feels more scary. I mean, both are scary, right? But I don't know. I mean, as a kid, I always wanted to be like an astronaut. So I think for me, like uh, space has more of that appeal. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it's not for me. It's not the space itself. It's the the whole journey of it, sitting in the in the plane, and you know the gravity thing that they show you in the movies. That's what's interesting to me. And in the sea, I think it's because it's so accessible. You can just go anywhere to the sea and just sit there. So I think I'll choose outer space as well. And I really like seeing like plan uh, movies about like planets and all of that stuff, sci-fi stuff. So definitely outer space. I agree with you both. I think the deep ocean is quite scary, actually. But outer space doesn't seem as scary, which is strange, but it's a strange phenomenon. I think I would want to know what happens in a black hole. It defies all laws of physics. So that's why it's just very interesting to me what actually would happen in a black hole. Um, so that's my answer. Um, I think you, pop, you might get bored, though. Like, I, I feel like see, you won't get bored because there's lots to see, depending on where you go, I guess. But um, with space, once you've explored all the planets, there's no one else to, like... Yeah, this, unless you meet an alien or something, then <laughs> hopefully then it might not. Get but do you think it's so, because human intelligence is so limited and we don't know what's out in space, and that's why we're framing it in a sense that, from our limited knowledge, there might be so much things out there, but we just don't know. That is true as well. I think there is a lot to see. Um, but yeah, no, I think I'm, I still lean towards space. Same. I think we're all going to do space travel. Yeah. Okay, so. Um, Okay, so the next question is, would you rather be able to understand every language spoken by humans or be able to communicate with animals? Arfa? The first one. Every language yeah, and why? I, I just think, um, I mean, language is such a powerful skill. Um, and I think if you could, uh, you know, especially these days when, you, when, you know, people are traveling more, et cetera, et cetera, I think the ability to kind of connect with other humans on, in their language 
is just really powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, with animals, they don't talk to us right now. It makes no difference to my life. So whereas I feel like being able to communicate with humans in whatever language possible, it would make a massive impact. I think so as well. What's your, what's your thoughts, uh, Yeah, I, mean? I completely agree with you both. I think like Arfa um, said, uh, it doesn't make any difference now. We don't talk to animals now. It doesn't matter if we do it in the future. I mean, it would be interesting to know what they're, I don't know, saying or feeling, whatever animals do. But I think languages it is... I agree with Afra. It's such an important skill. And imagine going to any language. You don't have to like translate. You can just be like a local and talk with anyone. So yeah, definitely languages. So what would you do? So for instance, you have that ability to speak any language. What's the first thing you would do? And I'm going to ask Afra. What's the first thing I would do? I mean, I'm I'm always quite curious about people. So I would just start talking to people like while on holiday or if I was just traveling and just trying to learn more about them and their life and can I connect with them on a on a deeper on a deeper level yeah absolutely I do think traveling really does open your mind especially when you're exposed to people's cultures and different and a different Mm. way of thinking and I think people define things very differently as well across different cultures and I find that very intriguing I think, you know, with languages, the place that I always enjoy the most and you can see so many cultures is those markets that they have in those little villages and those little towns. Mm -hmm. So I think you would go to, I don't know, Turkey or something and, you know, those little markets, that's where I would use, I don't know, my Turkish skills and talking with the people from the village. I think when you go to a city, when you travel to a city, it's not that, uh, there's not that homely feeling, but I really like when there's like small villages and you can talk with elder people that are there in the towns and how they live. So I would definitely be, would be my first place, I think would be Turkey. Turkey. Can you just tell us about your experience in Spain and how that, that, that panned out? Because obviously you can speak Spanish fluently since you grew up there. Did you feel like the way you immersed in culture over there was very different to the UK when you came here? I think so. I think Spanish culture is so, um, how do you say, like, it's so heavy. Like, it's, it's everywhere. So it was, I was, I was managing uh, was it my Indian culture, my Indian ethnicity with the Spanish culture. And there's, there was two sides of me. There were two different personalities. But I think my parents, they wanted me to balance that and kind of, so I'm Spanish, I'm Indian, I'm this and that. But I think it was really easy, to be honest, because I was do- go- going through it with my siblings. So it was like a group experience of getting Spanish culture and the Indian culture in- ingrained in me. Do you think there's a difference between Spanish kind of identity and British identity in terms of the way they conduct themselves? Um, yeah, but I think Spanish people, because I've grew up there, then it's so much more homely to me. So I think I will always gel more with Spanish people. But yeah, I think British people... Yeah, no, I don't know. <laughs> it's it's look, it's kind of the same. It's kind of the same. Do you think it's the same? I feel like Spanish people are very warm-hearted. Not yeah. to say that British people aren't, but when you go to Spain, I feel like I felt people are very hospitable. People are very warm and kind and very open. Um, I don't know, Arfa, have you ever been to Spain? Uh, yeah, where did I go? I think I went to Madrid and Alicante, which is like a beach coastal town. Um, yeah, I think I think there is definitely a level of hospitality that that is there for sure. Yeah, that's why I always love um, going there. But it's always a different experience. Um, it's such it's so different from when you start wearing hijab and when you don't. So when I wasn't mm-hmm. wearing it, I just felt like a, like a Spanish local. Then when I came back, so when I came from the for the holidays, I just felt like so from like outside. I feel like an outsider because I was wearing my scarf and people weren't being as warm sometimes. But people were sorry sorry can you repeat that they weren't being as warm as they oh, were when I, I wasn't see. wearing it that's maybe what I felt like because I just went there but yeah I'm really sorry to hear that um, that you saw there's a difference between the both uh, I've been wearing hijab since I was very young so for me I feel like I've kind of grew up with the way people have viewed me and perceived me um, well, that's a whole different discussion for another day definitely I think one the, I think the last question the last final two minutes that we have on the show until we go for the break is would you rather live in a world where it's always summer or a world where it's always winter summer summer I hate winter <laughs> okay give, give us reasons what, what do you do in summers what do you, I don't do anything, but I have three reasons. Look, in winter, you have to layer so much. So you have to think your outfits through. In summer, you can just wear one. I can just literally just wearing a dress today. And that's it. You don't have to wear You don't have to worry about what jacket you're going to match, your gloves or this and that. First that, then the weather is really nice. So you can do anything. You can go to the sea. You can do outside activities. Third, the, it just looks so much better. Like you, you don't want to look at your window and see 
I don't know, like clouds and gray stuff. Okay, and Alpha? I think today's a prime example. I mean, where, where I am right today, the sun has come out. Yesterday, it was very gloomy, miserable, rainy. Um, I just feel like sun, the sun just puts everyone in a better mood. Um, and I just feel like you're just able to do so much things, so many things. Like, yeah, all the outdoor activities. Like, It's been really annoying, actually, over this last nearly six weeks, I would say, of really bad, wet, unpredictable weather where I just feel like the summer's gone. And all these plans and activities we had, days out, cycling trips, this, that, etc. None of that happened. So I would just love the ability to have summer all through the year because then it's not limited where, I don't know, cycling, for example, you only tend to do that in the summer months if you're a bit of a hobbyist like me. So if I, if I had summer throughout the year, it would be something I would be doing throughout the year, right? So I think it's just one of those things. Absolutely. And I think that it's a really nice way to kind of round up the first half of the show. And for me personally, I definitely think summer. I just love the sun. I tend to even go to sleep with the windows open because um, I really enjoy it. So that is the first half of the show. In the next half, we'll be talking about Muslimic makers. So see you in the next half. Assalamualaikum. Assalamualaikum. This is Atif Nawaz. Listen to Inspire FM shows in your time by heading over to inspirefm.org or listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Assalamu alaikum everyone, welcome back to Sister Speak, you're here with me Mariam, Farin, and Arfa from Islamic Makers. On the first half of the show we talked about our thoughts of the week and we played a game of Would You Rather. But in this half we'll be talking about Muslimic Makers and how it was established. So for those who don't know, Muslimic Makers was established in 2016 and has had over 2,400 attendees, 45 events and recently had its first tech fest in World Institute. Um, uh, Royal First Tech Fest in the Rural Institution. So it's an organization that seeks to upskill, mentor and create a ne- networking opportunities for Muslims in the tech space. So I'm just going to delve right deep into it because I'm really excited to hear about Muslim makers and how it's established and the kind of influence it's creating to the Muslim community, um, which I'm really super passionate about. So the first question I have, Arfa, is what led to the creation of Muslim makers and what is its main goals and initiatives? Yeah, sure. Um, So it started back in 2016. And this was when I was very early in my tech career. And I basically found that when I was going to these tech meetups, I didn't see people like myself on the stages, the events um, had, you know, beer and pizza. um, There wasn't really like a prayer space. And another friend of mine, um, who actually I connected over Twitter, and now known as X, um, also was experienced this and um he just approached me and he's like hey i've got this idea i want to think i want to set up like a meetup for muslims working in tech and i was like oh that's really funny i've had a similar idea that i've been sitting on like for the last two years but i thought you know only five people in the coffee shop will turn up because there's not that many of us however we did our first event and like 50 people turned up some already in tech some you know interested in breaking into tech um, and then we realized, oh, okay, there's a bit of a demand for this, there's interest. And um, early on, I was talking about consistency. And consistency was was the forefront because in our first very early years, year one, year two, etc., we used to do meetups nearly every month, at least every two months. Um, and that really basically helped to establish us as this London meetup. For Muslims in, interested in tech specifically because there were already a lot of Muslim uh, professional networks out there um, but there was nothing uh, focused around tech and that's kind of where we in a sense came in a lot of the other Muslim professional networks they supported us they advertised for us as well and stuff so you know everyone was very supportive um, earlier on um, and then on top of that um, we um, so yeah that 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 happened and it really kind of just started off with the piece of just around inspiring because you have to see it to believe it so if you saw people like yourselves on the stages you would you know as an entrepreneur doing a certain tech career you would start to think oh it's possible for me to do that so it really kind of started off very specifically kind of just focused on that um around the inspire piece um and then around time oh <laughs> And then around um, lockdown, um, what ended up happening was, um, you know, if everything we were doing was in person, it was like, oh, now what, right? Um, We already had like a Slack community where people could um, 
you know, interact with each other. So we started to double down a bit more on our online community. We created like a Kickstarter careers program. We started to do a few courses around product management, data science, etc., and really kind of focusing on upskilling. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when kind of lockdown and stuff was over, uh, we decided that actually what we love doing and what people enjoy the most and what we're known for are our events. And we started to go back into like the event space and doubling down on the event. So it's like upskilling, knowledge sharing, and kind of like connecting people. Incredible. And um, just on the basis of those, um, on that answer, could you just tell us about the Kickstart program and how that was kind of panned out? And what kind of feedback did you get from your beneficiaries? Yeah, so the Kickstarter program, so the funny thing about the Kickstarter program was, we named it before the government had their own Kickstarter program. So it was really funny because it happened at the same time. So um, for context, the government launched a Kickstarter program to get, I think, like people um, get smaller companies to hire like 16, 17 year olds, etc. Um, and they would like pay for like the income tax or, or something like that. Anyways, ours was not related to that, but we the reason why we called it Kickstarter because I recognized that over the X amount of years of doing Islamic Makers, people just didn't know where to start when it came to tech careers. They they want they wanted to really understand everything that was going on. So we designed this program, I, I think it was over like four months or something like that. And every two weeks we did we explored a different subject so it's like you know one week would be like product management and then they would have an activity to go away to kind of practice some product management skills or one week would be marketing and then so it was like giving them like a small little taste in terms of like the different like avenues they could go down and um my favorite is so the uh we had like data science machine learning learning kind of ai these days as it's now kind of like really kind of talked about so the machine learning actually was was probably the the biggest success actually because there were a couple of people that were really interested in going into data analytical careers and then went on to like secure graduate schemes or went on to actually further their learnings because it's not easy right it's not as simple as oh you're going to do our little our course because our course isn't a technical course you know it's just about inspiring people and giving them a taste so that they have direction and they also had like a mentor who can kind of help and support them so there was kind of all of that going on and then off the back of that then there were basically a new community had formed within Muslimic makers called the machine learning so we uh, so the machine learning channel is our most popular channel on Islamic makers because that community kind of just came from the Kickstarter program and off the back of that you know they started to do kind of Sunday reading and you know the the, the people between themselves would start to self-organize so actually a lot of their learnings kind of went on and then yeah there were a few people that kind of changed careers um, or got jobs that they never thought that they would get um, and, and I think a lot of them yeah credit the fact that the fact that they were able to do the Kickstarter program it gave them the knowledge and insight and the tools they needed to know what they needed to learn next I think that's incredible and I think that is really useful and valuable for people who come from underrepresented backgrounds Um, a lot of it sounds like so much social mobility work which is something that I'm really passionate about and I think it's quite what you're saying in terms of giving people the ability to have access or taste of what tech looks like and give them that that direction or that support for them to be able to navigate a space that they might not have um, originally planned to go to or something that they probably think they won't be able to Um, so thank you for sharing that and I think if anyone is interested they can uh, access Mozambic Makers on all their social media platforms. Um, they have a Twitter, they have or X, and they have uh, Instagram and they have a website as well to, to gain some, if you want to gain some more knowledge on that. Um, I just want to ask you a question in terms of um, your chapters, because I know there's four chapters on Mozambic Makers and I just want to know more, how did that kind of pan out? Um, I think it's an incredible achievement, so I really would like you to delve, delve in deeper into it and also explain what chapters is to our audience. So chapters is uh, really special for me, actually. So chapters ultimately are can local community members running with Mozambique makers wherever they are in the world, basically. So they start to put meetups. Um, and the story behind that is being London-based, or well, I was, um, you know, I still am, I guess, uh, London-based, and um, our team was London-based. We were very London-heavy and London-centric. And naturally, doing lockdown, our community grew more. I mean, we still had people like, in the UK and stuff but during lockdown it definitely grew more internationally and I always had this vision that I wanted to empower the community to basically um, 
use our resources and be able to actually do good in their local area. So off the back of that, the first chapter. So Manchester is a really interesting one. So Manchester, before lockdown, before like we tried to set, set up the Manchester chapter way before lockdown. And then I remember we had a meeting our first meetup scheduled for Manchester and then lockdown happened. So then that basically pushed us back for two years. So then once lockdown was done and then the the Manchester chapter definitely, I would say, is one of the, the, that are definitely like on par with London now, I would say, in terms of the amount of events that they do. That team is like so great and they just do some really amazing work. And, you know, so now it's really nice because actually there is obviously a massive Muslim community in Manchester, but also Manchester is a a decent tech scene as well. So it kind of aligns really well. And ultimately then, you know, we had some brothers in uh, Boston, America, who were really keen um, on on doing something there. And then we, a sister that actually used to be part of the Mazami Makers community in London, moved back to Toronto, Canada. And she was like, there's nothing like this hair. I want to do Mazami Makers hair. I've seen your son do these chapters. How can you help me do that? And ultimately, we've created a structure where, um, so we have like a central team, as I call it, and the central team kind of does all the boring things the eventbrite the social media you know those things that actually like just are at mini and then we empower the volunteers to basically be like okay you know your local area you go find a venue space you go find you know some speakers that are are passionate and then let's get an event um let's get an event in the diary and let's start to you know get that that local community formed and yeah we've had four we've got a few others in the pipeline Luton might be in the works too just yes. letting you know we're all interested uh, in Luton don't worry <laughs> <laughs> so we uh, found a yeah, volunteer are, you recruited a volunteer are, now <laughs> yeah a few there are a few members actually based in Luton so they, they they're you know and often actually what I, I do is like my role is to facilitate so ultimately all I'm doing is connecting people and then I'm saying right you, you're passionate about this you go away you have a thing you let me know what you need and then ultimately because they come with the power of the Muslim Makers brand, it's much more easier for mm-hmm. them to then convince the tech company to give them free venue space because they're, they're like, look, we're actually part of Muslim Makers and they've been doing this thing for eight years and they've partnered with all these tech companies. So all of a sudden people actually pay more attention, I think so. Yeah, I think the so power think- brand is very, very, sorry to interrupt. Um, yeah. It's really, really powerful. And I think one of the things that I think is so incredible about Muslimic makers is that it's homegrown talent it's grassroots but it's also very uh, expansive in in sense where everyone is interconnected and everyone is ready to be able to facilitate that change or to influence change um, so I think that's really incredible and I think that's a really good segue for my next question is how do you envision the role of Muslims in the tech industry which is evolving um, in the next couple of years or even the next decade yeah I think um we're just getting started, I think, is the first thing, right? So Mazamic Makers started back in 2016. That was very early, right? Nobody was paying much attention then. And I've seen firsthand over the last couple of like years, people get really excited about getting to tech, this, that, etc. And, you know, like tech, tech TikTok and this, that. It's like really interesting to watch because as somebody who was like right there at the start and then to see the emergence of it and more people you know hype it up too i would say you know sometimes there's a bit of an overhype as well and i think it's important to recognize that um they you know there's a lot of hype um around it now in terms of i guess the roles of muslims within kind of the tech space there's, there's like two or three angles you can look at it one is in terms of like mainstream tech and actually the importance of our people being um being the people behind building these AI tools because AI isn't biased, humans are. So actually, if our people are the ones building the algorithms, etc., there's a lot of considerations that um, can be taken. I mean, even ChatGPT, right? We all love ChatGPT. I use it as part of my workflow now. It's just, it's like, you know, I, I use it every day. It's just normal for me now. But ChatGPT, historically, when ChatGPT was actually a closed infrastructure and only some researchers, etc., had access to it, ChatGPT was Islamophobic. You know, mm-hmm. you would put certain commands into ChatGPT, and it would, and and that wasn't ChatGPT's fault. 
that was probably the human's fault, but actually Google's fault as well, because actually there were so many Islamophobia articles that were ultimately, it's analyzing off the back of that, right? But the human behind building the algorithm hasn't put the certain benchmark. Now, if you say to ChatGPT, what do you think of Muslims? It gives you a very apolite answer that can't be skewed in any way. So they've learned, right? People have learned to actually, we've got to be really careful about how we do this, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the role of Muslims, people of color, minorities, women within tech infrastructure is really important from like a societal point of view, especially as AI is becoming like second nature in terms of everything we do. Then the other angle is from an Islamic point of view, right? Um, and in terms of how tech can actually uh, enable our deen and how actually we can do further with that. Um, a good example of that is, um, so uh, there's this app called Guider, uh, like Guider, and then basically um, what they've basically done is took, um, if you've ever used like Duolingo, the language app, and micro learning, the habits of breaking micro, they basically just built an app to be like, okay, so if your goal is, um, I wanna be a bit more um, conscious in Salah, for example, they've like broke it all down so that every day you just do three minutes, right? And I mean, there's that hadith about kind of um, consistent small habits, right? And ultimately that's what it is. And they've kind of took that, used tech principles, used good examples of tech products that weren't in the Muslim market and then applied it for an audience like us now that are super tech savvy, if savvy that want pretty products, that want good user experience, etc. And they're just like one of many that are starting to like appear. Um, so I think that's really exciting as well um, in terms of like what we can do to help each other as Muslims. I mean, you know, Launch Good is another one. Just they, the, the fact that they have automation stuff on a, on a Jummah, on a Friday, or during Ramadan. My 10 Nights is another example. Again, I know there's a bit of controversy around kind of, oh, is it taking away the consciousness and stuff? You know, there's there's obviously, you know, pros and cons of, of things and stuff. But ultimately, all of these tech tools have done is they're enabling people to be better Muslims, they're enabling people to give mm-hmm. charity. So actually, actually, if you look on the principle of things, there's just so much more goodness that that can be done through tech on a bigger scale absolutely and i think one of the things um just to round it off is that having this increased representation of Muslims in the tech space really is shaping the digital landscape and like you mentioned it is enabling us to be able to utilize these tools effectively to help us become better Muslims but also to be able to allow us to infiltrate sectors that perhaps we were not had access to so i think I think even historically, if you look at Islamic history, we were pioneers. And I think that's something we should go back to as well. We were the ones that were discovering um, multiple things in terms of humanities, philosophy, uh, even in terms of physics. All of these algorithms actually come from Muslims. We're the ones that pioneered that. So I think it's really important to kind of think about how we are, as Muslims, are always striving for ihsan and excellence. And we should be able to infiltrate every sector and to be able to make the best out of it and always have that optimistic um, principle that we're able to, to use this for our advantage. So thank you for sharing that. I think um, my kind of next question is, is how, do you, how can initiatives like Muslim Muslim Makers continue to drive positive change and empowerment? Oh, um, so the continue part is really interesting. Um, I think it's about building um, in the right infrastructure. So like with Mozambique Makers, right, I've always been very conscious that when I started Mozambique Makers, I was single, I didn't have a baby, I wasn't married, like all those things, right? So the amount of time and love and effort I could give it was, is very different to what I can give it today. And so it's been very important for me to try and put some kind of infrastructure in, in place so that actually the effort continues and that's why it's been really important for me to empower other community members to run with it and almost I become just an advisor for them or I don't get involved and you know a good example is yesterday we went to go see a venue to do a partnership for kind of our London meetups and then I had the London team kind of London volunteers kind of come along with me and then the moment they started talking about planning it I was like cool you guys do that I'm out like I'm not gonna you know or, or or simply like they're like oh yeah we'll schedule in for next week I'm like yeah don't invite me to to that meeting because I'm purposely not trying not to be like the blocker anymore and I think infrastructure often is um not thought about and unfortunately in our Muslim organizations mine included even because it's took me a very long time to, to land on an infrastructure that I feel is working now 
is that all these great projects start they go on for a few years and then boom they disappear because we don't have the funding or unfortunately as muslims we don't fund it ourselves all these things happen all the time with muslim organizations and um that's why i think you know if i was to build mm now compared to like what i built eight years ago i would have built it very differently i would have built it very in a sustainable mindset to this to this day like i still right now i think i'm you know mm is okay for like the next year or two because i can you know i have a paid staff member that i can kind of pay to kind of help keep things ticking over etc but the moment i don't have that money or that money runs out because we don't really have you know most of our money comes potentially either from sponsorships doesn't really come from the community because all our events are for free when we try to get money from the community people get so comfortable with the fact that we've given things for free that people aren't willing to pay uh you know and so, so that in itself, so I would just build everything so differently. I would build sustainability right from the start and being more commercial because I feel like being more commercial allows things to live on. Um, whereas unfortunately, because sometimes we come from a charity mindset or doing good mindset, which I think is a general problem, not a problem. It's, you know, it's a good thing that we have that. Unfortunately, in the long run, it's, it just doesn't work. I think that's absolutely right in terms of having balance, in terms of having the sustainable mindset, but also understanding the longevity of your organisation. And I think, I think you're downplaying what you've achieved, Arfa. I feel like you have achieved so much impact that it's not even tangible or you can't even be measured. Um, and I think that I think that's what hindsight is about. It's about going through. It's it hard though not being able to measure it because when you do something that's in events, community connections, it's very hard to be like. Somebody came to our event, they got inspired, they built a business because half the time those stories don't come back to me or mm-hmm. something. And when people do share, like I remember there was a story from one of our Manchester events. A sister went to the event. She got really inspired to get into UX design. She joined our Slack. She like dropped a message in the Slack. Some other sister connected her to some other opportunity and then she, she actually started her career as you. And then she, it was really nice when she shared that with us. Often we don't get to hear those stories because, you know, it's not as tangible in terms of like a product or, Mm -hmm. hey, we raised money or we did this, right? Like, it's so hard to measure human kindness in a way. I think so as well. Even in the tech fest, I remember you emphasized so much to make sure that we do evaluation forms. I think that's something that we need to get accustomed to because in order for organizations to be sustainable, you need to have that data. It needs to be data informed. And whether that's quantitative or qualitative, that data will not will inform how the vision of the organization will survive in the next couple of years. And I think a good example of data is Muslim Census and how they sustain themselves. And even then, they are they a company. They, they, com- they commercialize from the very beginning and they're still able to influence change. So having that mindset is very important from the beginning. And I think as Muslims, I think we do have that charitable mindset. And I don't think that's, I think that's conducive to change, but it has to be in balance in terms of how we think about how we're going to sustain this for the long term. Um, and I think it's, uh, it's multiple factors that can be influenced by this because, of course, you know, uh, we kind of ha- have this mindset that we need to, from my parents who have come here to survive, it's very easy for us to just want to give back, but without understanding that th- it could be implicated with the fact that it might not be of a long term. Um, so I think it's really important that we kind of have these discussions and to be able to think about how do we leave a legacy that's going to be surpassing us. Um, so. Mm. Thank you, Arfa, for kind of sharing that. I think the next thing I kind of want to talk about, which we only have a couple of minutes, I don't know where this show has flown by, is about the challenges um, that you perhaps face or challenges in the tech industry um, for Muslims to know about. So I think the first question is, how, how, what challenges or barriers do Muslims still encounter in the tech industry today and how can they be addressed? So I think one thing to acknowledge is it's it's way better now than it was when I first started. Um, I shared a story on TikTok the other day, actually, about how a couple of years ago I went to this kind of digital tech festival um, by festival. It was like a small meetup as part of this festival. And then um, I was given like a drinks token. And when I queued up to get my drink, they told me I could only use an alcoholic drink. And I was like mind blown, right? Because my, my, my soft drink, my Coke is cheaper than your beer. And just these little oversights mm. often happen. Mm. Um, I've, I, and to the to this day, you know, I might find myself in certain events and certain places where um, there might be fancy canapes, but they're not labeled properly. So then you don't know what you can eat. And, you know, these kind of environments, um, you, you might just kind of find yourself in or 
a client again i remember again from my early days you know um so you know uh, when i was doing a marketing role we were working with this other agency and for christmas as people do they send you presents and stuff which is fine but the present that i got was a a, a bottle of champagne and it was just a bit like oh well this isn't useful for me so i might as well give this to the team and it's you know it's not my hard work being acknowledged there's nothing i can do with that and again, like it was like, okay, you know, so I, I actually remember writing that email back to that thing and be like, well, thanks for the thing, but FYI, I'm Muslim and I don't drink, just for future considerations. And I think I've always been quite brave like that to kind of call call it out. Mm-hmm. But I think if you're very early on in your career, often people are quite shy about it. Um, and rightfully so, because you don't want to be penalised. Um and I think it's just kind of one of those things. I always say, um, again, uh, in one of my early, earlier jobs, there was no prayer space. I used to just like, I used to say bust out my prayer mat, but there used to be students. Um, it was a coding bootcamp that I used to work at. And um, we do have two minutes. I'm so sorry, Alpha. We only have two minutes yeah. left. But I just, so I just, if you could round up this answer, because there's one more pressing question I really want to answer. Ask. Yeah, sure. Um, so just, just to conclude that one, basically, um, so um, when the other Muslim students used to come, because I was the only other Muslim employee, they would come to me and be like, hey, where can, where can I pray? And I'd be like, here you go. This, the, the employers, they actually acknowledged that so that when they actually acquired another floor, they made sure they created like a well-being corner, prayer corner, etc., so that everybody could benefit. And I think ultimately it's just about like you've just got to be brave. Absolutely. And I think that's something that can be applied to every kind of sector to just to be able to be unapologetic about your faith. Um, And that will be a good setting stone for other people who will may come after you to be able to navigate that space. I think the final question I want to ask you, since we have a bank of experience, is what advice would you give to young Muslims aspiring to pursue careers in the tech field, considering the potential challenges? And you'll have to answer this very quickly, maybe like 30 seconds. But I think it's a very important question. YouTube, TikTok, uh, Udemy, all these, everything, the answer is online, right? Um, you can learn everything online. So just get the experience and just start building, I would say, and just start looking online because I think they have it. So you have it so much more easier than, than people like did 10 years ago. So I think just start. Absolutely. I think that's a very good advice. I think utilizing the tools that you already have in terms of resources and, and in fact, looking at Muslimic Makers, join their Slack team, join their Instagram pages. They also have a picnic this week in on Regents in Regents Park, I think, and on Saturday, which I'll be going to as well, hopefully. Um, so just try to meet new people. I think that's the one of the fundamental ways to access a new space. Thank you, Arafa, for having us, uh, for, for, for being on our show. And we look forward to having you in future instances. alaikum. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Why not tune in to our live stream at inspirefm.org and follow and subscribe to our social media platforms at inspirefmluton.